show today by singing happy birthday but you have to pay royalties for that so yeah, screw that noise no we steal other people's music and play in between stuff but i'm not about to start singing um but we are celebrating a birthday today on the george sanders show uh it's Catherine deneuve's 70th birthday this week and so we're going to talk about one of her most uh iconic roles uh in Bunuel's belle de jour from 1967 we'll also talk about its sort of sequel uh, Belle Toujours from, uh, what year is that? Uh, 2006. 2006, why not? Um, we will also be discussing uh, our Cinema Central pick for a film where a housewife becomes a prostitute, <laughs> and then uh, also discuss the career of Catherine Deneuve in general. Uh, with me as always is Sean Gilman. How are you, Sean? I am okay, Mike. He is okay. I am okay. Shall we talk about Belle Toujours? Est-ce qu'on donne un nom au taureau comme au chat Mais oui, la plupart de ceux-là s'appellent remords. Excepté le dernier qui s'appelle expiation. Quelle heure est-il Entre 2 et 5 heures. Mais pas plus tard que 5 heures. Et ta femme va bien Très bien, merci. Où est-elle Là, à côté. Tu veux lui dire bonjour Avec plaisir. Comment ça va, petite ordure Alors, tu vas bien Espèce de traînée. Vieille roulure. Fumier. Allumé. Pur infime. Fais la timone. Espermantrice. Bouchasse. Pierre. Pierre, je t'en supplie, arrête, je t'aime, Pierre. All right, that was a clip from Belle de Jour. Catherine Deneuve uh, plays a frigid housewife who uh, kind of has a sexual awakening when she uh, decides to enter a life of prostitution, um, unbeknownst to her husband. Every, everything, Sean and I were talking about this before the, the, the show started. Um, all the f- posters for this movie and the, the you know little taglines you see um, say things like, sexy, or an erotic journey, into, you know, something silly like that. A young woman said, erotic journey from Milan. Milan Minsk, yeah, uh, Rochelle, Rochelle. Um, and it's funny, because this movie obviously is about sex, but it isn't sexy. Not really, and you know, that, that, that can be subjective, and maybe it is for the anonymous reviewer from the Seattle Times. But <laughs> but for me, the movie is is much is much colder and and kind of darkly comic than it is sexy. I agree with you. Even though Catherine Deneuve is a very sexy woman, uh, and she's she's very pretty. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's an interesting movie, and uh, you know, I think the first time I saw it, I was. You know, it's one of those movies. I think you have to be a little older to really appreciate. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really care for it all that much the first time I saw it, which was maybe ten years ago. 
I, I think I liked it the first time I saw it, but I was I was pretty young, you know, and I think I just wanted to see, you know, naked Catherine Deneuve and and so I went into it and I didn't a, a realize noble, what I was getting. A noble desire. That's right. I'm I'm still on that quest, ladies and gentlemen. Um but yeah, you know, I was a sexually confused, you know, boy, and now I'm a sexually confused middle aged man. So <laughs> some things have changed in the interim. Um so you've only seen this once before? Yes. Okay. Um but so, did you appreciate it more now on second viewing? Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, um, I didn't really get it the first time. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I was kind of expecting it to be about you know her, you know, uncovering all these perversions and having a sexual awakening. Where it's it's the the kind of twist in the story is that is that she is you know, it kind of exploring this perversion where she's like getting off on, on being a prostitute while keeping it a secret from her husband. But the thing is, is that that only makes her love her husband more. Mm-hmm. And that's the really like compelling twist in the story is that she gets closer to her husband by cheating on him. Yeah. Which is really funny. I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. I, and I don't think there's anything, you know, I, I think it's really sweet of her, you know, um, because in a way she kind of, I mean, it's weird to talk about it in these terms, but she kind of does it for him because obviously yeah. the movie starts with him, you know, trying to get her to warm up and, and be, you know, um, sexual with him and she's totally against it. But then she determines that this is the only way that that will happen. Yeah, and as the film goes along, they they grow closer mm-hmm. and, you know, she starts to kind of open up to him and, and she's like, and, you know, they, they have conversation about it and... She's like, you know, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm, I'm getting better. I just right. need, you know, a little more time. She doesn't say what she's doing right. to work on it, but... Just a couple more Johns and I'll be good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's it's got this... Uh, and it's it's directed by Luis Buñuel, who's uh, who's kind of famous as as beginning as a, a surrealist in the in the late 20s and, and early 30s, working with, with Salvador Dali and, and various other... People and he's just kind of uh, this kind of uh, surrealistic gadfly in world cinema from from the 30s until until the 1970s, and and this is one of his his most famous films. And it's not surrealistic in the sense that you get like the the dream sequences that Dolly did for Hitchcock's Spellbound. It's Boonwell films everything really matter-of-factly and, and, you know, from normal points of view. There's no, like, weird cameras. There's no ostentatious, you know, images in the film. And, but it's... It, he'll cut from dream sequences to, to real sequences with no kind of transition. And it just kind of gives the sense of the whole reality being surreal. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And that's actually one of the main points I want to talk about this with the film is that you know, when you try and be provocative in a, you know, an oddball or surrealistic way, it can get really grating really quickly. And this is a really wise decision. Like, it's still odd. Um, and especially near the end when, you know, which I think we'll delve into in a little bit. But those two things kind of meld where there is this abstract imagery happening and you're not sure quite what's going on. Um, and, but uh, well, it becomes more and more difficult to separate the the, the fantasy yeah. from the reality. Um, and it's great, and it works really wonderful. And and yeah, there are. I love these dream sequences. I mean, they're really great, and they're each one is very distinctive. Yeah, and they mostly involve her being punished in right. some way. 
uh, like the the opening shot of the film is this is this long shot of a carriage, and it's actually it's a it's a shot that Woody Allen copies a lot, where you have like a, a stable camera looking off in the distance, and you hear like the sound from the distance as it's coming closer, and then as it it approaches the camera, it's a carriage with like bells jingling, and as it approaches the camera, then the camera kind of follows along with it. Which uh, Woody Allen uses all the time, all the time, or at least he did in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. yeah, Annie Hall and what have you. Um, yeah, and 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 what's great is yeah, it starts out with this dream sequence that we don't know is a dream sequence. Right, you think it's like a, this romantic outing with the woman and her husband, and and then they like get to a clearing, and he has his men like tie her to a tree and whip her. Well, I, I love it. I wrote it down because it's so funny because it changes on a dime. They're like, they're huddled together in the back of this carriage with their arms around each other and, and they say these, you know, gooey things, you know, I love you, oh, I love you more or something like that. And then in like a split second, all of a sudden he's got these guys whipping her and raping her um, and it's awesome. <laughs> Put that on your movie poster, yeah, ladies and gentlemen. You know, it's it's odd to say that 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 it's funny, but it's it is. Yeah, no, it. Um, Maybe that makes us horrible people. Probably. Yeah. Uh, that's. I think that's Boonwell's point. You know. Uh, you know, actually watching this movie, I was like, man, men are the worst. <laughs> I mean, it it's really an interesting because obviously she's the main character, um, but it's actually really more of a it, it, it's a portrait of these different you know, damaged men, too, you know, especially, you know, in the um, prostitute place. What do you call it? The brothel. Bro- the brothel. <laughs> <laughs> you can see I'm very familiar with these places. Uh, this den of sin. Uh, you know, you get these little vignettes of these guys. Um, the, but the best one is the um, the scholarly guy. That, yeah, you, know, you meet, uh, I think it's, I think it's three of her, of her customers. And the first one is, uh, is the professor and he has this, uh, no, the first one's a candy guy. The candy, the, the, uh, Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the first one's like the, the fat businessman. Yeah. He's like kind of slobbering and, and really gregarious. The second one is the professor who has this like uh, domination fantasy that he wants her to enact, but nobody told her the rules of it. So he gets rid of her and then they like, uh, you know, the, the madam has her spy on it. So she'll figure out what's going on. My favorite is the, uh, is the, the Japanese guy who doesn't speak French, but he has this mysterious box and he opens up the box and like shows it to the girls and there's something like buzzing. It's very annoying buzzing. And, and one of, one of the girls like shakes her head is like, no, I don't want any part of that. But, but Catherine Deneuve is totally into it. Yeah. What's great about that section is, um, afterwards the, the maid comes in and she, she says to Catherine Deneuve, who's like laid out on the bed, just like wrecked. Um, yeah, the and whole says, and the whole room is trash. Yeah. There's like lamps overturned and drawers and clothes flying everywhere. And and Deneuve is like face down, and and the maid is is being very sympathetic. She said, "Oh, it must be really hard doing what you do." And then Deneuve gets up and she's smiling and she's like really into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's just we're just gonna recount the whole movie. Uh, but no, I think this movie is is really wonderful. I I really responded to it this time. Um, and I, I think every aspect of it is just great. The dream sequence is the direction. Um, and Deneuve, too, she's really wonderful because she she makes these incremental changes where you actually, you know, in the beginning, she feels, she looks very frigid, very cold, and, and she plays it that way. Um, not in an over-the-top over sort of way, but as she kind of, you know, 
well, warms up over the course of the movie. That's that's one of her, you know, great strengths as an actress, and we'll and we'll talk more about her later. But she is she's fantastic at being cold and icy. Right, but she once she kind of blossoms, she she does it in a very um, organic way that I totally believe, and it's really great. Yeah, I think she does both sides of that character really, really well. So we should we should talk a bit about what what we think this movie is kind of saying about relationships between between men and women and. Because it's uh, it's kind of fascinating. Because a lot of these stories about about housewives who become prostitutes kind of set up this very simple dynamic between like a, a Madonna and a whore, and there's like two ways to be a woman, and uh, it's also a kind of an anti uh, feminist kind of scenario where like women who are out working are are prostitutes and they should be in the home. But it's also the the flip side of it is is that the women who are leaving the home are leaving a, a very like structured patriarchal setting and going off and making money on their own. So it's also kind of pro woman. I don't I don't know that that Boonwell you can fit him onto this kind of feminist or anti feminist spectrum. He just seems I don't think to he cares about that at all. Blow it all up. Yeah, exactly. I think that's his ultimate goal. And that yeah, I think he. He's not a partisan. He's not gonna. He's not gonna pick sides on on any, you know, thing really. You know, except for the anarchy. You know, and uh, yeah. If if I get if I get any kind of sense from him, he's he's just kind of anti any kind of categorization or any uh, uh, hierarchy or any kind of organization of people into into groups. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's you know him being anti-rich people and like uh, exterminating angel or discreet charm of the bourgeoisie, which are kind of skewering the upper class, or uh, in Viridiana, where the the poor people are just seen as just uh, totally amoral, you know, agents of chaos that right. come in and destroy this woman's life. Uh, similarly, I think he thinks all of the men in Beldajour are really fucked up. But I also think that he thinks the women are too. Oh yeah, I I I, I think he yeah he'll take on all targets, and I think that's what's really great about his stuff um, is that he's not really pushing any sort of agenda except for chaos, you know. <laughs> Right, and I think I think he's he's just he wants to kind of expose hypocrisy, and he's getting and wants to like. Not so much put forward a truth, but just kind of strip down all the layers of artifice that that we build up around ourselves and our society. Yeah, no, most definitely. Um, I don't know that he has like a positive, this is what is actually true, though. It's more just a, a kind of a breaking down. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I don't think that there's, I don't think he comes to any conclusions. I don't think he, sh- I don't think he shows an alternate path, necessarily. He's just like... This is stupid. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I don't think that he is recommending that all of the frigid housewives out there go get jobs as prostitutes. Well, you never know. Uh, right, no, absolutely. There's actually, well, talking about his uh, his other work, This the scene that reminds me of his other work the most is when she goes to the estate of the, the one guy, the, the guy that's into, like, necrophilia and, or whatever, like, he makes her... Dress yeah, up, the guy, you know. the, a very rich guy picks her up and and takes her to his house to enact a, a religious ceremony, is what he calls it. Right. And he has her dress in this long black veil and and lie in a coffin, and he talks to her like he like she's his daughter. Yeah, it's really gross. <laughs> and, and, and and then he kicks her out. Yeah, then he throws her into the pouring rain. But um, but as soon as it gets you know it gets to that 
mansion that estate. It reminds me of you know Verdiana and, and those other films where he likes sure, to just the kind of the utter decadence of, yeah. of the aristocracy. He's a duke, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, those touches were nice, and I, I, I liked those. Um, I don't know if they're callbacks, but yeah, those things that reminded me of his other stuff. Really cool. Uh, we should talk about Michelle Piccoli's character because that'll become important in the in the sequel. He I have a theory about his character. He plays the the friend of uh, of Deneuve's husband, and he's he's very much a kind of lecherous, idle rich guy, and he's got a a, a thing for Deneuve, and she finds him really creepy. And then, it's, but at some point, he gives, he gives her the address of the brothel, um, which kind of gets the ball rolling with her with her new career. And then, you know, towards the climax of the film, he he comes along and actually goes to the brothel and finds that she is there. And at the end of the film, which we're going to spoil, uh, he... Deal with it. He he goes to her house and, and tells her that he's going to tell her husband, who has been uh, shot and is now paralyzed. We should get into that part, too, at some point. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, He's going to tell the husband what she's been doing, and his his rationale for it, I think, is just is really really clever. Which is that the the husband is all depressed because he's paralyzed, <laughs> and now his beautiful young wife has to take care of him. So he wants to even the moral score between them by letting the husband know that she's actually kind of a tramp. Yeah, he doesn't want her to to think that she's just this angel. Right, thing by his, his side because she's really guilty, and and I and and the, his theory is that then they will be able to act like equals. Like he'll be a burden on her, but you know, maybe she deserves it. Right, <laughs> this is the price she's so paying. So then their relationship will be happy. Whereas if he, the husband continued to not know it, they would have they would be on this unequal setting. Yeah, his character is is very interesting. Uh, Husson, um Yeah, and. My theory, and I don't actually subscribe to this, but um, I think you... This is a take uh, on the movie that I think might be interesting, is right before they meet him, they're at some chalet, some resort. Yeah, it's like a ski resort. Yeah. And uh, her husband and uh, Deneuve and and a friend of theirs or whatever are walking down the lane hand in hand or whatever, and they're kind of just having this innocuous conversation about um, meeting a mesmerizer, which right. is different from a hypnotist. Um, uh, and the husband even says, a hypnotist puts you under, but a mesmerizer brings you out, or something like that. Yeah. So here's what I'm saying. Husson is the mesmerizer, right? And he's... At his conversation with Deneuve, she doesn't realize it, but he's now mesmerizing her. He's like him, him planting the, the prostitution idea in her head. Right. So even prior to mentioning the... Uh, the address of the brothel. He's already like insinuated himself in her brain and he's the one that's unlocking her power. And so he's the mesmerizer that they're talking about earlier. So you think he's like some kind of uh, puppet master yeah. manipulating her? Absolutely. I mean, I don't, like I said, I don't actually believe that. But, uh, well, but how, I, you how, can would, how would that play into the ending though? Well, then he's, then he's come, he's, He's done all of his manipulations, and then now he's he's ad, he's admitting, or not admit necessarily admitting, but he's now releasing her. You know, he's letting her go from his clutches, and now she just has to deal with the destruction he has wrought. And I mean, even if he wasn't the mesmerizer, he's responsible for a lot of his destruction. I mean, he, you know, right. as throughout the movie, he really does uh, some damage. I mean, he's a total ass. I mean. <laughs> 
I, I mean, know, he's but, an interesting character. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about the character more in Beltajur because he's the central character of Beltajur, and and I think there's a lot of interesting things going on there, and we'll talk about that. We'll later. talk about that. Later. Um, you wanted to talk about uh, the uh, the young. Uh, I want to talk about Ruffian. hipster uh, vampire Killian Murphy guy <laughs> with like. Uh, That's who he looks like. He looks yeah, like Killian Murphy. He looks exactly like him with uh, gold teeth. I was thinking he looked like Adam Driver from from Girls. I don't know who that is. Um, yeah, no, he's totally Killian Murphy. I love that character, and and that he seems like he's a vampire, like out of time, like he just can. He wears this long black trench coat, and he carries. He's a cane. very gaunt, very yeah. thin. He's uh, he's a lot like a lot of of characters from French cinema in the sixties, like that, like Jean Paul Jean Paul Belmondo would play, or Alain Delon. He's kind of this kind of gangster type, tough guy. But he has this look that is is. Yeah, Almost it's, it's, supernatural. Yeah, certainly. You know? um, I'm, what, my favorite line in the movie might be when uh, she and... Uh, she. I think it's their, the first time they sleep together. Um, and she's embracing him afterwards and she feels this scar on his back. Mm-hmm. And she says... Was that from a knife? And he said, maybe. <laughs> I don't I don't know. I've been stabbed many times by many different kinds of things. It could have been a knife. Um, but anyway, his character is really interesting. And, and it kind of, you know, once he appears, the movie kind of takes a left turn in a way. Because um, he falls for her. He, he's kind of above it all. You know, he, he actually pushes her away at first because she has a birthmark and he doesn't want anything to do with her. Right. And he's kind of this... I don't want to say pure because he's, you know, this. You of, know. of all of her clients, he's the one that's that's most attractive to her, and, and yeah. she thinks that maybe she might be falling for him. But really, she loves her husband. She does, um, but he loves. But uh, his character falls for her big time, and sure. he he gets very jealous. And since he's a thug, he doesn't really know how to deal with that, except for you know, basically shooting her husband. <laughs> And then running down the street and getting shot. Um, and, yeah, I think his character really um, is like a, a stick of dynamite, you know, in the last act of this movie. And um, I think... Well, in pretty much every way, he's the opposite of her husband. Yeah. He, he's aggressive, and he's he's dark, and he's, he's violent and scarred, whereas her husband is just kind of this ideal, you know rich doctor yeah. who's really nice and really solicitous and is just an Very all-around patient. great guy. Yes. Uh, so you can see what attracts her to to uh, Michelle, uh, the uh, the ruffian. Right. Yeah, and I just I I love his look. I love I love the way he plays it. Like he even when he's in the background in a scene, you kind of can't take your eyes off him. You know, there's the scene where um, there's some sort of deal taking place in a restaurant. And Marcel is his name, not Michelle. Sorry, Marcel. Uh, and he's sitting. He's sitting in the back of the frame, and there's kind of this deal taking place. But he's just sitting there with his like hand on his, uh, you know, big long cane, and he's got this big, you know, James Franco and Spring Breakers grill going on, um, and <laughs> he's just a menace to society. And yeah. I think it's awesome. Yeah, he's great. He's played by uh, P- Pierre Clementi, who I don't know if I've seen him in anything else. Well, he's kind of like um, Max Shrek, you know? You don't want him to be in anything else, <laughs> you know? Because he's some sort of vampire, you know, that's just haunting cinema. Oh, well, I'm sorry to say that he has had a long career. Damn it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not going to watch any more French movies just so that I can uh, 
avoid seeing him in anything. Okay. We see these also. These, we see these flashbacks of um, Deneuve's life, like from when she was a kid. Yeah, there are, there are a couple of flashbacks which maybe kind of explain her her perversion. Like uh, she appears to have been molested as a, a young girl, and and there's also the one where she's in church and she refuses to take the wafer. Yeah, um, we assume related to the the molestation, her right. finding her own self unclean. Right. I don't know what I have to say about that. <laughs> it's, it's not. It's not really developed. It's. It's not really given as a like a rational explanation for for her frigidity. But it's. Right. It's certainly understandable that that might be. Yeah. A part of it. Well, yeah. I, I like the fact that the movie doesn't really. You know, it kind of throws that out there, but it doesn't. Um, it doesn't have some sort of psychoanalysis. You know, some guy explaining or some. You know, some way of being like this. You know, A happened or B happened because of A. You know, or whatever. Well, if anything, it it shows just kind of the the callous, callous, uh, callousness and exploitativeness of men in her life. Not just you know, and even the the ones that aren't actively exploiting her are just kind of ignoring her. Like the you know the priest isn't helping her. He's just like, why won't you take communion? Right. Uh, so you know, it's in in becoming a prostitute, she's in a weird way, taking control of her own sexuality oh, by choosing to submit to the various men that, that she's uh, working for. Yeah. And I don't think that's a necessarily a radical idea. I mean, I think a lot of, um, you know, sex workers, you know, use the, you know, that that's their idea of what they're doing is they're, you know, taking right. Control and that, and it's it. inherently contradictory because they're, they're taking control by being submissive. Yeah, by yeah. choosing to relinquish all control right. as opposed to having that control taken from you. Kind of blows my mind. So on the uh, Boone Wells Spectre, does this, uh, how does this line up for you? Uh, it, it definitely moved up from the, the first time I watched it. I haven't seen, I've seen maybe half of like the big Boone Wells movies, like Exterminating Angel and Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, probably my favorite, and you know, Ocean Andalou. His, his first short film with uh, it's great with Salvador Dali uh, and is, is really good too and and Simon of the Desert I also like a lot that was the one he made just before this one I haven't uh, seen that one that's a good one it's really funny but there's there's a whole bunch of, of really acclaimed Bunuel movies that I haven't seen yet yeah I'm the same way I mean I've seen the two yeah, like you said I've seen the two um, collaborations with Dali, and uh, they're both great. I think they're wonderful films. Um, I should revisit them at some point. And I've seen Veridiana, which I like. Uh, it's probably my least favorite. Um, but I really enjoy Belle de I think it's a really solid, um, complete kind of picture, you know? Yeah. No, I think that's it. And I think with that, we're going to listen to a little uh, Francoise Hardy. Yes. Un jour que dans la rue, seul je me promenais, un garçon inconnu, soudain m'a accosté, j'ai fait celle qui n'entendait rien, ne voyait rien et l'ignorait, mais ça a raté, le lendemain par hasard, comme je me promenais, je laisse en retard, venir me relancer pour le Parler de moi sans arrêt, mais ça a raté. Il m'a dit que faites-vous ce soir? Et il a si bien insisté que jusqu'à minuit et plus tard. 
ensemble, oui nous, nous avons twisté. Uh, Francoise Hardy with a song that I assume is in French. We haven't picked the song yet or listened to it, but uh, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure it's great. That was Ka Arate, which I like to believe is a song about martial arts. Yeah, you know, I think she was really, Karate. Yeah, Karate. You know, <laughs> uh, Mike actually did some research this week hey! for once, and he found a, a couple of news items for us to discuss. So the first one is. From the Dissolve, which is actually uh, summarizing an article from the Los Angeles Review of Books about uh, canons and Netflix and Netflix's impact on what um, are becoming the canonical films for a generation that's like growing up now without video stores, without you know repertory screenings, but they do have access to instant Netflix. And and apparently the interesting thing in the article and um, actually you know. The the article the original article I think was about TV shows and then and then the dissolve was like well let's extrapolate this and talk about film but um, the interesting thing is that it seems like Netflix is the end all be all for viewing for the new generation as it were it seems like they they don't have the Hulu pluses they don't have uh, Amazon Instant or you know God forbid Warner or uh, you know Fandor or something, but they do have you know BitTorrents and well, yeah, but various this is, pirate ways of, of getting things. Yeah, but it seems like to me that probably the majority of people um, that age, if they're gonna torrent something or, or it's gonna be like the new movie that they can't get yeah. on, on Netflix, they're not gonna be like, oh, I can't watch F for Fake. I'm gonna steal this from the internet. You know what I mean? Right. So this is this is kind of two different kinds of people. There's like the the mainstream canon. It's like what what most people who aren't like kind of hardcore cinephiles are going to be able to seek out, and it's just going to be the stuff that's on that's on instant Netflix. And that was with the original LA Review of Books article. That was that was the complaint is that that kids are watching just the TV shows that are on there, like The West Wing or Archer or... Mad Men or something. Uh, Mad Men, and, and not watching Deadwood or The Wire or The Sopranos because those aren't available on instant Netflix or, right. or Veronica Mars. You know, right. Not just the HBO shows. But, right. And, you know, that that's true because people will watch what's available to them and that's what kind of builds the canon. And, and all of the, the various film and television canons that have been developed over the last, you know... 60, 80 years, or however long there have been canon formations, have always been dependent on on what is readily available. And the fact is that there aren't repertory screenings anymore, but there is TCM. There aren't video stores anymore, but there is the Criterion Collection. Right. And so those, it's different things that are now setting the canon, but it's still the same process of, of canon formation. It's just different movies now. So like, uh, you know, TCM has... A vast library of, of films that they'll show, but there's certain things that they don't have. Like they, there's a lot of like Fox product from the 30s right. and 40s that they don't have. So those movies kind of fall out of the canon in favor of MGM and Warner Brothers or, right. or Paramount, uh, which is the stuff that they're able to play. So you'll see a lot of MGM musicals on TCM, but you won't see a lot of Fox musicals. So you know Judy Garland and, and Gene Kelly um, become bigger stars than like Danny Kaye or Alice Faye. Right. 
The thing that concerns me about this, though, compared to previous um, canons or whatever, and, and this goes into the whole argument about physical and digital media or whatever, um, is that, you know, whenever a format changes, you move from, you know, um, VHS to DVD, things get lost. You know, things don't make that transition. Sure. A lot of it is crap that doesn't need to make the transition, but some things that are probably gems don't make the cut. But with physical media, there's still a physical thing around, you know what I mean? Um, and I fear that as these things get windowed down, that there just won't be, these movies won't be able to be seen anymore, you know? Um, they'll just disappear, you know? Yeah, and I don't, I don't know that, I mean... Obviously, stuff is going to disappear. It's it's inevitable. It happened with film. The vast vast amounts of silent film are gone forever. Oh yeah. But you know, most of the best stuff is going to survive. And you know, a, a lot of the the older generation, the people you know, ten twenty years older than me, bemoan the development of DVD because there's stuff that they saw in repertory theaters that never made it to DVD. Or even, you know, there's stuff that was on VHS that has yet to be on DVD, like right. like Abelgans' Napoleon or, or Eric von Stroheim's Greed. Still not on DVD. Or uh, King Vidor's The Crowd. I'm only naming silent movies for some reason. <laughs> there's tons of uh, trashy, like, 80s uh, slasher films. Right. And then and the, the thing is, I, I still think we're in a much better place now than we were in the 1980s, like uh, uh, a, a great film critic like like Dave Kerr likes to complain that that uh, you know people think that everything that's ever been made is available on DVD or instant Netflix, and I don't think that anybody really believes that. And and he bemoans the fact that that the selection now on DVD and Netflix is worse than what it was uh, on 16 millimeter or 35 millimeter film back in the early 70s when he was uh, when he was running a film program at the University of Chicago. And the thing is. The vast majority of people right. in the U.S. <laughs> in the 1970s <laughs> were not able to rent films from the University of Chicago and watch them on 16 millimeter. Right, and and you know I'm really cautious about trying you know, about sounding like uh, the old guard or whatever. Like I, I'm really not trying to sound like you know the kids today don't quite get it. You know what it used to be like, um, but in a way, the kids today kind of don't know what it was like. Like. Talking about video stores and stuff, like, th that experience of walking into a video store and browsing and stuff, um, it's so different than scrolling through something on a laptop or scrolling through, you Yeah, know, well, especially given the, the disastrous interfaces that Netflix horrible. Keeps, keeps adding. You know, every change they've made over the last decade has made it worse and, and harder to find the movies yeah. that you actually want to see. But that's neither here nor there. Like, a competently run company could create a, a good kind of browsing system for, well, actually, yeah, for yeah. their films. But it's still not the same as like being in a video store and being able to pick up the box and flip it around and, and look and, you know. And have it like, you know, I'm thinking of the way Scarecrow's laid out or whatever, but like being able to put it in some sort of meaningful context within the store itself, you know, like like where they shelve it with other things. And you can just be right there and see all the Johnny Toe movies right there or, sure. or what have you. Um, and well, that's and, and Johnny Toe is a great example of this because he's he's a director who has a few films 
available uh, for streaming. Like I think the, like the first election and maybe like a couple of the more recent ones like Vengeance or Life Without Principle. On Amazon, all that Johnny Till has right now is uh, Vengeance, uh, Don't Go Breaking My Heart, and uh, Romancing a Thinner. Thinner. Yeah. So, so really like the most, the most recent movies. And they give kind of a, a skewed view of what Johnny Toe was like. And, and for a long time, uh, Exiled and, and the election movies were on instant Netflix. So those are the movies that people are seeing. That leaves out just this this vast sea of, of films in his career. So if, you know, Miracle of Miracles, somebody in the U.S. actually gets interested in Johnny Toe and then goes to watch it, they're only seeing the stuff that's on the instant Netflix. Right. Whereas if you go to a video store like Scarecrow, Scarecrow has every Johnny Toe movie. Yeah. And you can rent them all and watch, you know, the romantic comedies, the silly, really bizarre and kind of bad early stuff. And right. Along with, the, you know, the more contemporary gangster movies. Right. And, that, and it's, yeah, it's interesting, like, to think of in 10 years from now, what films are going to kind of rise to the top and, and filmmakers are going to rise to the top partially on the fact that they're just more available. You know, like you were saying about Danny Kaye or something like that, Falling by the Wayside or something like that. Like, I think in that article that we're, that kind of started this conversation, they're talking about how the top ten films in AFI's list of best American films ever made or something like that are not available on streaming or whatever, and so they're going to be underseen. And obviously those lists are, you know... Well, the whole Arguably. the whole idea of the AFI list to begin with was driven by video rentals, right? Like it was like in partnership with uh, with Blockbuster and like Hollywood Video in order to get people to go to the video store and rent these movies, right? Which were yeah, okay, but so, still, but I mean, you know, that was just an example. Um, but you know, like if if Vertigo is not streaming, you know, some kid in the middle of nowhere is not going to see it, you know, and that's you know. Kind of sad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and in you know, you could say the same thing about the fact that like movies aren't on network television anymore. Like like growing up, I saw a lot of oh yeah of movies. You know, Killer Clowns from Outer Space on, on PBS or just on like the the Saturday Night Movie or something. Yeah, 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 and they just they don't show movies that way anymore. But you know, people who or if they do, they they just like butcher the hell out of them. Sure, and but the people who are going to be interested in Vertigo are going to you know find some way to get Vertigo, whether it's getting the disc from Netflix or whether it's stealing it from the internet if it's not available from streaming. Yeah, but... I don't I don't think, like, the, the Hitchcocks of the world have to, to worry so Well, much. I was just an it's, example. It's more like your, your Louis Spoon Wells, who, right. like, the a lot of his films are available through the Criterion Collection, but not at all, a, you know, a total sampling of his career. Like, I don't think any of his Mexican films are, are on Criterion, so... You know, you see the late French movies like Belle de Jour or, or Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, but you're not seeing Los Libertados or The Criminal Life of Archibaldo, Dela Cruz, or like his Robinson Crusoe movie. Well, so that's kind of, you get a, a skewed picture of Louis Buñuel as a filmmaker because you're only seeing a few. Well, and I think that's kind of what's happened to Orson Welles is that, you know, outside of, you know, Citizen Kane and then his performances in stuff like the third man or something like that, you know, all of his other stuff is really hard to find, you know, except for, I mean, for fake, you can get on criterion. Yeah. Yeah. But like, where are you going to see chimes at midnight? Where are you going to see, you know? Yeah. And that, and that has a lot that has more to do with like the family dynamics of Beatrice Wells and Oya Kodar. And I'm just saying (laughs) that 
if all of a director's work was available, sure. his stature would be different. Like, you know, people look, uh, you know, the, the kind of common view of Orson Welles is that he's a failed genius because he made this one movie and then he disappeared forever. Sure. And that's not the case. He was kicking ass the whole time, but nobody knows it because they can't watch those movies. Yeah. That sucks. <laughs> it does, but they can watch those movies if they go to a video store and rent them. Right. And uh, there are very few video stores left, but one of the best is in Seattle. And this we ta- we've talked about it pretty much every week on the show. And this Saturday is Video Store Day. Yeah, it is International uh, Video Store Day. It's kind of modeled on the uh, record store day that's been pretty popular the last uh, decade or so, getting people to go out to the record store and actually buy physical music um, again. And yeah, so Scarecrow and a bunch of other... Um, you know, video stores throughout the country are doing a video store. They, this coming Saturday, the 19th and, um, you know, there'll be, you know, sales, they're going to be giving away fun stuff and it's just going to be a good, you know, communal come on down and, you know, party with us, which I think is great. Yeah. Um, I'll be there. If you see me at Scarecrow on Saturday, I don't know. Give me, give me money. nobody, (laughs) Nobody knows what you look like. That's true. That's good. My internet presence is uh, thankfully clear of photos of me. But yeah, if you're in the in the uh, Seattle area, definitely go to Scarecrow. And if you're not, go to your local independent video store. Well, and you know what? I love Scarecrow. Scarecrow is great. Uh, I would like to shout out to other video stores in Seattle because there are some that are also is cool. Rain, Rain City video store around? I think there's one Rain City location still around. It's in Ballard. Um, there's 15th Avenue, which is uh, in Capitol Hill, and Broadway Video, which is on Capitol Hill. And um, I used to live in Maple Leaf, a beautiful little uh, part of Seattle. And there's Reckless Video, which is a tiny little place. But, man, you go there on a Friday night, it is hopping. I mean, they are kicking butt. So, you know, there are video stores out there. They, they aren't all like Scarecrow, but they, they've all got their own quirks and their own interesting, you know, titles. So check them out. Yeah, I mean, the video store landscape is better off for not being dominated by, by Blockbuster and Hollywood, and, and hopefully, you know, these independent stores will, will make a comeback, and, and there'll be more and more of them throughout the country. I hope so. I really do. Let's, you want to talk about uh, our some talk, essential picks? Yeah, talking about selling things. Let's talk about... Uh, <laughs> People selling their bodies. Housewives who become prostitutes, and... This is kind of a weird little subgenre of movies that seemed to really kind of dominate French cinema in the 1960s. Apparently there was, it was based in fact, there was a lot of, you know, news stories about prostitutes, uh, about housewives who would get bored, these kind of upper middle class Parisian housewives who would go and to make some extra money, pour themselves out. So there's a number of films about them. So what, what, uh, which one would be your pick? Uh, I'm going with uh, Godard's "My Life to Live" or t- "To Live Her Life" or whatever you want to call it. You know, it was known. She's not really a housewife, is she? She's she, at the beginning of the movie. She's married and she has a kid, and then she. I mean, okay. she ends up leaving that life, but still. Okay. You know, yeah. I don't, it's been a long time since I saw it. So um, I don't remember that. It's been a long time since I've seen it too. It, but it actually, um, it's it's an interesting movie t- for me because um, when I think of all the Godard stuff that I love, um, for some reason that one doesn't come to the forefront of my brain. But when I when I see the title, I'm like, oh my god, my life! I love that movie. Like it, it's actually probably one of my favorite Godard movies. But for some reason, I just you know when I'm rattling off you know Contempt and um, you know all those other great films, Band of Outsiders and stuff, it doesn't come to the forefront of my brain. But um, I saw it at SIF 
maybe six or seven years ago, I think they were doing a, a mini retrospective on 35, and uh, it was the first time I'd seen it, and it was just fantastic. And anyway, it's it, being early 60s Godard, uh, it stars Anna Karina uh, as the prostitute, and um, it's, it's shown, there are these 12 episodes um, that occur throughout the movie um, that kind of show her living her life. <laughs> and uh, it, it's got some really great Godardian stuff. There's some really, you know, jumpy edit, machine gun edit stuff. Um, she goes to see The Passion of uh, Joan of Arc. Uh, in that's the, really, that's really the most famous scene in the film. And it's it's really great. And it really, it was. I saw that before I saw um, Passion of Joan of Arc. And I, I think I went out and watched that like a week later just, just because Godard, you know, just nailed it, you know, sure. <laughs> shown it in the movie. So, uh, so that's my choice. What did you pick, Sean? Uh, you know, I don't know uh, eligibility-wise because you used uh, Jean Dillman before, but that's really the first one that came to mind. Yeah. Uh, but I figured, you know, that's already the essential... What did you use that for? I used that for lonely. Loneliness. Yeah, it's yeah. the essential loneliness movie, yeah. so it can't also be the essential housewife who becomes a prostitute movie. It was the first movie that came to my mind, too, and I was like, I can't pick it again, although I'd love to, but yeah. Uh, so my pick was another uh, Jean-Luc Godard film, which is uh, Two or Three Things I Know About Her, in which uh, Marina Vladi plays a, a housewife who, after she sends her kids off to school, drops the kids off at daycare, and the husband goes off to work, she goes to a brothel and spends the afternoon working in the brothel, and then she comes home, and, and that's just kind of her day. And it's it's a, a late Godard film, as opposed to, to My Life to Live, so it's a lot more kind of digressive and kind of anti-narrative. Like, there's very little plot, and it's not about her in the way that, like, Belle de Jour is about, as about Severine and, and her life. Right. Uh, and uh, a lot of it is, uh, oh, my drug war Blu-ray is arriving. Um, uh, where was I before I started talking about Johnny You were talking about, oh, so it's late 60s Godard. Yeah, so it's it's much more kind of foregrounding the moviness of it, and a lot of the, the soundtrack is just kind of Godard whispering, like, these kind of gnomic aphorisms into the soundtrack, and, and kind of pointing out that she's an actress, and she's playing this character, and then he asks her, and, you know, uh, there's, like, a weird segment with, like, two guys doing a radio show where they're reading lines out of different books, and it's, it's all kind of funny and weird, and it's, like, this in-between phase with Godard where... He was still kind of tied to kind of the narrative conventions of his earlier films, which are, even then were unconventional relative to like Hollywood films. But it's uh, it's getting more into the kind of essayistic kind of film that he would uh, begin making later on in his career. So, is it better than Made in USA? Yes. Okay. It's definitely better than Made in USA. <laughs> uh, which, you know, I like all of the 60s Godard films. I like all the Godard films, but Made in USA is probably my least favorite. Yeah, that, that it's my least favorite, too, easily. Um, and it it actually put me off of Godard for a while, because, you know, you, you have that honeymoon period where you watch the, the big-name ones, and you're like, oh, yeah. And then you kind of start getting into the ones that are a little more difficult, and that one was a, oh, man, that was brutal. Well, Godard's not easy. And, like, the, the earlier films, you know, it's easy to kind of fall in love with, with Band of Outsiders or, or Pierre Lefeu. Um They're really kind of charming. And, like, A Woman is a Woman is, is just a blast. But the later films are, are much more challenging, and they're never really quite what you expect. And they, they gain in rewatching and in thinking about them in, in ways that, that most films 
don't. Yeah, I mean, I'm not against them. Like, I like Weekend. Um, you know, I I don't love all of it, but you know, yeah, some of that later stuff I think is 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 solid. I need to really move beyond the '60s with Godard and get into his, you know, later stuff and contemporary stuff too. Yeah, I mean, he's. It's difficult to talk about Godard because there's so much kind of Godard reverence out there. It's like everything he says is absolutely genius. And, and that's, I would say like half the things he says <laughs> are, are genius, but he's always interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, his movies are a lot more fun if you don't take him as like the voice of God. Like if you just take him as like this, this cranky old Swiss <laughs> guy who's like obsessed with Hollywood and the Holocaust. Right. What's your favorite Godard movie? Pierre Olafone. Yeah, it's a good pick. Uh, well, talking about f- French icons. Somebody uh, who never worked with Jean-Luc Godard. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about that. At least so far as I know. <laughs> Prove us wrong, world. Yeah, that's uh, that's true. Uh, we're going to talk about our birthday girl, Catherine Deneuve, uh, who is, like we said earlier, turning 70 this week. And she's had quite a career. She's still working. She's still you know, cranking out a couple of movies a year, it seems like. Um what was your first exposure to Catherine Deneuve? I'm not sure. It might have been Repulsion. Nice. That's a good one. That's a good. Uh... I saw I saw Repulsion in in Boston. I was I was visiting a friend, and he was in law school, and so I like went out to the video store. And while he was in class, I would just like sit in his apartment and watch movies. So I'm like alone in this empty apartment <laughs> in a strange city on like a snowy afternoon and I watched Repulsion and it was like the most disturbing thing I had ever seen. It's uh, she plays a, a young girl who may be somewhat uh, developmentally disabled or she may just be kind of repressed and she is left alone at her apartment while her sister and, and her sister's boyfriend go out for the weekend and she slowly like goes insane and has all kinds of like weird terrifying visions and yeah that, I think that was, that a... was an unpleasant experience <laughs> watching that movie but but Deneuve is is fantastic in it yeah um, I mean she's she's great in everything that I've, I've seen her in and you know I haven't seen too much of her you know talking like we were about Godard I haven't seen too much of her later stuff you know there's the the stuff that really made her um, an icon and put her name on the map you know which I've seen and, and really responded to um I think the only thing I've seen her in recently, and this isn't even recent anymore, was Dancer in the Dark um, from your favorite director. Yeah. <laughs> well, she was in she was in The Hunger. I haven't seen The Hunger. Tony Scott's vampire movie. Yeah. yeah that's that's a must see. Uh, she's in um, Pola X, <laughs> which I tried to get you to watch this week. The the Leo's Carex movie, but you you nixed it. <laughs> I didn't nix it. I, I mean, you know, before I, I, I'm kind of regretting that decision now uh, because I bet you Pola X is better than uh, Belle Toujours, but yeah, we'll get yeah, to that yeah. in a second. Uh, she's she's <laughs> in the, the last two uh, Arnaud de Plachin movies, uh, Christmas Tale and Kings and Queen, both of which I, I like a lot. Yeah, I really want to see those. I've, I've heard really great things about those. She plays the, the mom, like kind of the matriarch of the family in A Christmas Tale, and, and she's pretty terrific. She has this great scene with, with Matthew Almerick where she's like his son, and he's... or he's <laughs> Whoa, this movie's crazy! He's her son, and, he, and he's kind of a disappointment because he's a little crazy and, and unconventional, and, and they have this like conversation where she's like, yeah, I never really liked you. <laughs> nice. That's got to be hard coming from Catherine Deneuve. Yeah, she's she's terrific. Uh, my my favorite 
of hers are the uh, the Jacques Demy films, the Umbrellas of Cherbourg and the Young Girls of Rochefort, which which she started in with her sister uh, Françoise Rolliac um, shortly before she uh, she died in a car accident. So it's uh, it's it's kind of great to see like the two of them together having fun in this really bright, colorful musical. Yeah, um, yeah, Umbrellas of Cherbourg is is my pick for her her best movie, um, which I. I it's also the movie of hers that I've probably seen the most. Um, I saw it, the best screening I ever saw of it was at uh, the Castro Theater in San Francisco. I got to see, you know, a gorgeous, beautiful, brand new print of it um, maybe 15 years ago. And, uh, oh, it's, just, it's, it's such a, it's such a one-of-a-kind movie-going experience, that movie. Yeah, it's one of my favorite movies. It's just so great. Yeah. I mean, if you haven't seen The Umbrellas of Cherbourg... Do yourself a favor, yeah. Check it out, and if it's not on, if it's not streaming on Netflix, <laughs> just just buy it. Yeah, blind buy it. Buy it. You'll it's be happy. The, it's worth the uh, the fifteen to twenty bucks. Is it on Blu-ray? I don't think so. That'd be, that'd be a good Blu-ray to have. It would. Criterion should get on that. Yeah, it should be part of the canon. Yeah, come on now. <laughs> well, yeah, Catherine uh, Deneuve. Um, I mean, what do you think about her as an actress? Like, it, she's. She's odd. I mean, like I like I was saying, she seems she's really good at playing cold and, and kind of icy and, and removed. Like she's she doesn't ever really seem quite human. Like she always seems like she's better than us. Oh yeah, she's and she is. You yeah. know, she's above it all, but that's okay because you know sometimes you have people that have that persona and you just want to punch them in the face or something. Uh, but Catherine Deneuve, I think the mystery there is essential, and I think that it. Uh, at least for me, it really works, and I think that um, I, I'm always fascinated when she's on screen. Yeah, I like I kind of compare her to to Anna Karina, who kind of broke through at the same time in, in French cinema, and and Anna Karina is much more relatable. She seems like she's much more, more playful, more one of us. Yeah. She's more fun. She's you know, but but uh, but Deneuve is just kind of this kind of ice queen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um and I, I mean I don't think it's it's necessarily that she's like limited as an actress. It might just be like her the nature of her physically. She just kind of seems more sculpted. Oh yeah, more, definitely. More uh perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um but I I but I I think that's uh that's totally worthwhile. I think I you know, I think she can coast on that the rest of her life. It's cool with me. <laughs> I'll dig it, you know. I think she's great. Yeah. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> well, with that, we're going to uh, talk about a movie that she's not in. Uh, much to your disappointment. Much to my dismay. The semi-weird kind of maybe sequel to it. So here's a clip uh, from Belle Toujours. Eh oui, mais avec tout ce que l'on voit par ici, on peut aussi bien dire que ce sont des anges. Pas de mari à tromper, personne à qui cacher des secrets. Cette femme qui voulait tromper son mari avec son meilleur ami, elle avait d'innombrables secrets. Celles-ci, elles sont ce qu'elles sont, elles font commerce de leur corps, mais elles ne trompent personne. Vous êtes bien plus dégourdi que vous n'en avez l'air. Ce n'est pas par expérience, en tout cas. C'est grâce à ce que j'entends. Les confidences. Vous n'imaginez pas tout ce que j'entends. 
je finis par croire qu'il y a des hommes pour aimer les femmes perverses, le genre de femmes qui, en plus du plaisir de tromper leur mari et aussi leurs amants ou leurs amants, ils joignent la délectation du secret. Le secret qui n'appartient qu'à elle. Oui, c'est vrai. Mais elles se fâchent qu'on en découvre leur secret. Elles aiment jouer les innocentes. All right, so Luis Buñuel was an old man. When he made Belle de Jour, he was 67 years old. He was born in 1900. He lived to be 83 years old. He died in 1983, 30 years ago. Manuel de Oliveira is still making movies. He was born eight years after Luis Buñuel. He will turn 105 in a little less than two months. Manuel de Oliveira is eight years younger than Luis Buñuel. He's 13 years younger than John Ford. <laughs> They made his, he made his first film around the same time Buñuel made his first film in the early 1930s. He's the last living director who started in silent films. And he's still going strong. Yeah, he's got, a, he's got an upcoming project. So, Belle de Jour is the film of an old man. Belle Toujours, Oliveira's uh, sequel meditation on response to, homage to Belle de Jour, is the film of an ancient man. <laughs> He made it in 2006, 40 years after, after Belle de Jour, when, when Oliveira was a mere 98 years old. <laughs> And it's very much a film about an old man. It, it follows Michelle Piccoli's character, uh, uh, Hassan, from, from the first film, played by the same actor again. And he's an elderly man, and he's at a concert, and he sees Severine, the, the character played by Catherine Deneuve. And he... In the original film. In the original film. Uh, she's played by uh, Boulle Auger for, uh, in this film. And he very much wants to talk to her. So much of the, the first, you know, uh, two-thirds of the film, it's barely over an hour long. First two-thirds of the film are basically him kind of following her around Paris as she's trying to avoid him and he's trying to track her down. In the meantime, he tells the story of the first film or at least his version of the story of the first film, to this nice bartender that he meets who, who supplies him with whiskey and listens to him, and they, and they chat about the story. So the film is, is, is both the story of, of the chase of Hassan trying to reconnect with Severine, but it's also the story of the bartender's reaction to the original film, and the bartender is kind of playing the role of us as the audience in, in kind of interpreting the story and saying, well, that's awful, that's really weird. Like, you know, people do all kinds of strange things, don't they? Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed this movie, and you hated it. I hated this movie. So, so tell me why. I absolutely hate this movie. I don't know why this movie was made. I, <laughs> I, I just, I'm, I can't even comprehend that you could get all these people together and make something so inert and stupid um, without any thought in it, and it's just... A waste of time. Thankfully, it's only an hour and change. I mean, it's really short, so I appreciate that. Um, but there's no point for this movie to exist. I think it cheapens uh, the original film. If, if you, if you, I mean, okay. Well, I think I would have hated this movie even more if I was a little bit younger, because now I can separate the two. Now I can be like it's its own it's its own entity. It 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 doesn't have to reflect on uh, Belle de Jour. Um, in the past, I probably would have been like, oh, you know, I don't. <laughs> I'm not going to get into what I would have thought before. But this movie was a waste of 
of everything. A waste of time. Um, the, okay, so this movie is, is, it's like 70 minutes long. Yeah. A tenth of this movie is the opening scene where they're, where they're filming the symphony and we see Hassan looking over and seeing uh, Severine or whatever. Um, that's a tenth of the movie is, is, is that. Is, is just him sitting there. And I don't mind movies that take their time or whatever. If there's something to, to say or to do, this movie didn't have... It, it was... Oh, God. <laughs> I'm trying to temper myself. Here. So you're, you were bored? I was... Okay. No, I was watching I, it. I enjoyed the performance. I thought it looked... I thought it sounded cool. Yeah, but then cool. just film a freaking symphony. Like, Plus don't... he does. There's long shots of the orchestra at work. Yeah, I know. But then... But it has no bearing on anything whatsoever um, in this movie, and yet it takes up a tenth of the movie. And then, like you said, the next like half an hour or 40 minutes is him following her, and she doesn't want to see him. And you know the thing that annoyed me the most about this movie? It's very minor, but you know what annoyed the hell out of me about this movie? Is the fucking concierge and the bartender. These are the worst employees ever because I mean the bartender he's okay but the concierge he gives out information that you wouldn't like if I was staying at that hotel Regina whatever it's called yeah and I told the concierge I didn't want this guy to know where I am and that freaking guy tells the guy like right afterwards oh she went that way right and like a uh, 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 severing uh, is trying to leave the hotel and, and they cross paths in the elevator. Like, like he goes up just as she comes down uh-huh. and, and, and she he goes, does. and she goes to the front desk and the concierge is like, Hey, this guy's looking for you. And she says, well, don't tell him where I am. I'm leaving. And, uh, and then, then Michelle Piccoli comes back down and she's like, uh, she wasn't there. And, and the concierge is like, she's right over there. <laughs> yeah. Well, and before that, no, but even before that, like he shows up, like, you know, I work at the library. We're all concerned about privacy here. And he shows up and he's like, I'm looking for blah, blah, blah. And, and the guy's like, oh, room 227. Just go on up. And it's like, well, I can, th- I can think of a number of reasons why that would be motivated, though. Like, your your objection seems to be that there's that he's just a terrible concierge. Well, no, I'm, I'm just, I'm nitpicking here, but... Um, I mean, the fact is that, that uh, no, Peekley is, is an old man and people tend to be trusting of the elderly. Fuck that! <laughs> the fact is that, that Peekley bribed him. He gave him a large amount of money. He's a very rich man and rich men tend to get away with everything. And third, he's a man and she's a woman and men tend to stick together. Well, <laughs> that your, your arguments are making me even more mad. Um, <laughs> For that, I mean, it's a very minor. It's a very minor thing um, that just it's just one in a, a long string of things I hated about this movie. Um, okay, let me ask you this. Let, let let's turn it on to you for a second. Okay. Um, do you think this movie could like if if someone went into this having not seen Belgezor, could they appreciate this movie? I don't know why. It's possible, but I can't imagine it. Okay, now, I for me, you a movie needs to like it should stand on its own, even if it's if it's reflective or whatever. Like it should be able to um, exist without the you know 
coattails of the of the of the much superior movie that it's trying well, to Well it's it's a film that's in dialogue with the other movie. I and understand if you, and that. if you haven't seen the other movie, then you're only getting half the dialogue. I mean it's not designed to be seen in isolation. Like it, it says very explicitly right at the beginning, this is a film inspired by Louis Buñuel and Jean Claude Carrier. And- but I think that's a, I think that's a mistake. I think I think you can do that. I think you can make a movie that is in dialogue with a, another film or another piece of art of, of some sort. But I still think that the movie needs to like. I feel like this movie is just trading in on Belle de Jour. Like it's it's it's. And would, you, would you listen? Would you watch a, a, a version of, of Amadeus that didn't have any music? Yeah. See, I wouldn't. I wouldn't find that interesting at all. Why is um, Why is Mozart interesting if not for his music? But you, it, you can make a movie. Let's say that it was a rights issue. All right. Let's say it was a rights issue. You couldn't get the rights to to Mozart or whatever. Or, or okay, here's an example. Okay, Gus Van Zandt's Last Days. Right. It's a movie that's thinly veiled as it's Kurt Cobain, right? It's the last days of Kurt Cobain's life, right? There's no Nirvana, there's no music, there's no Nirvana music in this movie, you know. Sure. But it's still a fascinating portrait of of a person. Yeah. You don't need to you don't need to hear smells like Teen Spirit to be like, oh, now I need to care. I now I care about this character because he wrote this pop song or whatever. This movie to me, it it, it it's. I, I call it a wisp. Like there's, it's so, it's so fleeting. Yeah, um, it's 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 light. <sighs> but I I like that. I I I don't I don't get it. Okay, so what did you get out of this movie? Like what what in this movie like engaged you intellectually and 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 sort of? I like I like the uh, I like the bartender. That character, that actor, is in a lot of uh, Oliveira's movies, and I, I just kind of like him as an actor. But I like his interactions with with Peakley, as Peakley is telling him the story of of the first film, and he's telling him a skewed version of it. And the way that the bartender is responding to it is the way that we in the audience might interpret Bill de Jour, and we're you know thinking of various theories, and you know why did she do this? Why? What is her motivation? What does this mean? What does it say about society as a whole? And also, I like that that Pickley's version of the story is not exactly what we saw in the film. Because in his version of the story, her motivation is all that she actually wanted to sleep with him. It's this kind of selfish theory that maybe explains some of Severine's actions, but I don't think it does. It's awfully a, a very much a self-serving memory of the events from fifty years earlier. And that okay, that's my biggest problem with this. Is is is. Okay, him being a liar makes sense because his character is sleazy and his character was sleazy. Well, I don't sleazy. know that he's lying so much as he remembers things the way he chooses to remember them. Well, there's one point where the bartender asks him, um, did you ever go to this brothel? And he said, oh, no, not me. Sure. He's clearly lying there. Um, well, we don't ever actually see him go to a brothel. No, but, but in, she, in Belle she, de Jour... She says that, that he was an earlier customer. Yeah, the, the madam does, so... Yeah, he comes in and they're like, oh, he's back. Where have you been? Right. Clearly, he had frequented this brothel. Sure. So he's... he's One, he's a fucking liar. Two, he... he so he lies about the stuff that is tangible and that is is, is um, able to be verified. He's lied about the things... He lies about the things that make him look bad. Here's my problem with this movie. Uh, 
So he he lies about stuff that um, can actually be verified in some fashion. Um, he, he lies about that stuff, but then he gives a perfect description of her interior, like, um, you know, um, feelings from the first movie. He describes everything that she feels that we see as an audience member, but that his character would have no way of actually knowing. He's, well, he, he observes her character just like we do. We don't, we're not any further inside of her head. Like, we see her dreams and we see her flashbacks. But just in seeing her actions, he could easily interpret them. The no, 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 no. Because he describes, and I, 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 did I write it down? Um, he describes certain things that are, are psychological elements that are, are not explicitly... Um, like to the characters within Belgezur, and I'm sorry I didn't write it down, but um, he describes things that his character would have no way of knowing. He could maybe guess at it, but the way he describes it is exactly how it happens in the movie, and that, and that really pissed me off because it made his character seem more uh, omniscient than he could possibly be well, if he was he, living inside that he, movie. he planted that psychology in her when he mesmerized well, her. Well, no, I mean, you know, if my mesmerizing <laughs> theory works, that's fine. But, um, but here, like, okay, his character in the first movie is fascinating, um, but he's also kind of a dick, and you don't, you know, that's, that's okay. But in this movie, I just hate him. And, like, He's he's the focus in this movie, and I don't like that guy. Actually, I liked him a lot more in this one. Well, he's not as villainous in this one. Well, actually, well, he he's, kind of he's, is. He's still, he's still a total asshole. He's, he's not... I wouldn't say he's more of a, a rascal. Are you, are you kidding me? So the movie ends with the two of them meeting, and she really didn't want to do it, but she finally, you know... She agrees to have she dinner agrees with him. She agrees to have him. dinner with him, but... She's still like emotionally wrecked, you know, wrecked from this, and um, the guilt of forty years is on her and stuff. And she just, you know, he wants to see her, and he totally uses her and has her come there for his own ends. But then when she wants to get what she wanted to get out of it, he doesn't give it to her. Right, because he he sees that that this kind of like like front of, of Catholic guilt that she's you know she's like oh I'm gonna go join a convent. You know, he knows that she's lying, that that's a front, and she wants to, to he wants to, to puncture her self-seriousness. What a dick! I mean... Well, that's exactly what Luis Buñuel does in Belle de Chure. No, I know, And you but... admire it with Buñuel, but when Picoli does it, you're like, he's an, he's an asshole. No, no, because... <sighs> okay, so, in... Okay, here's the thing. In Belle de Jure, she... Okay... We we focus on her character, right? And and it's and, and her character is the main focus for this movie and we kind of see the trials and tribulations and she's really trying to find herself and she kind of, you know, in a fucked up sort of way, she kind of, you know, blossoms and finds some sort of peace to a degree at some point in the movie, um, even though by the end of the movie, because of this character, yeah, things get all all weird again or whatever. But the whole point of the movie of, of, of Belle du Jour is, is, is not to, to watch her suffer um, and then ultimately see him destroy her again. But this movie, to me, it's like... The movie's even teased as... Um, 
you know, the secrets will be revealed or something like that, which I would not like anyway. That would be really annoying. So I appreciate that he didn't say, here's what well, I said I mean, to do you. Do you think the at the end of Belle de Jour, she is destroyed? Like, he, he his motivation, as it's explained, and, and like I said, I think it is really cool, is that he wants to put her and her husband on equal footing. She's not destroying her. No, but she gets That's destroyed. bringing more reality to their relationship. But she walks back into the room at the end of that movie, and there's her that... Her husband is sad. No, she walks back into that room, and then she... And her husband's sitting there, and she walks to the window or whatever, and there's that great section where, where we were talking about earlier, where Bunuel shows... Um, you know, I think it's like a... He superimposes like two images or whatever, and shows it. I mean, at least for right, me, like she's it's, it's kind a, of mentally crumbling at this. It's point. a it's a double exposure: a shot of trees and a shot of a house, and the house goes down and the trees go up. Right, and and so she she obviously comes back into that room nervous. She doesn't know what to expect or whatever, and she walks in there, and then her mind she kind of like loses her shit. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, she's totally kind of destroyed by the end of that movie, which is cool. Uh, but here. <laughs> But here it's just like I'm a total dick. I'm going to I'm going to chase you around Paris even though you don't want to, you know, hang out with me or whatever. Oh, and then you'll agree to see me. Here, come on in here. Oh, fuck you. Oh, movie over. <laughs> I I hate this movie. Oh my god. Um, I thought the scenes with the bartender were really she she has the end of the film she has this question for him like she wants to know if he really told right. her husband because apparently she and her husband never talked about it they never actually like had an open discussion over what went on she just kind of like repressed it all and and so for for you know 40 or 50 years however long it's supposed to be you know she's been you know wondering what what he said and he's you know he's he sees that she's you know after supposedly having this this awakening where she's become more in tune with her sexuality and that's supposed to give her a better relationship with her husband. She's just fallen back into this kind of icy, repressed, you know, f- hypocritical front that she's put on. And so he doesn't let her off the hook for that. He, he you know, he... She finally, like, flat out asks him and, he, and she's like, what did you say to him? Did you tell him what happened? And, he, and he's like, what would be the truth and what would be the lie? And she gets pissed and storms off, and it's totally, and I get pissed totally, and I storm totally off too, like a, a a dick thing to say. But it's 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 an appropriate response because she's the one who's been lying for forty years. Okay, well, this is another problem with this movie is that it I think it shouldn't matter what he thinks. It shouldn't matter what she said to her husband. If she's going to live honestly, she should have done that on her own. I agree with you completely, and and that's why this movie has no reason to exist because. You, sh- it shouldn't like. <laughs> um, I, I'm glad I can separate this the two characters from the two movies um, because I like it. I like leaving Belle du Jour um, at where it is. I don't. I don't. I don't need to know, and I. I, I don't necessarily want to think that. Um, she fell back into this trap 40 years later and that she's, you know, needs this um, closure or whatever. So there's no point for this movie to exist because who gives a shit? Um, but, so but you, the, you don't like it because it's more negative towards suffering? No, I don't like it because <laughs> you should make your own freaking movie instead of uh, commenting on another movie from 40 years ago 
um, and dragging out these characters well, and doing. Manuel de Oliveira has been making his own movies for eighty years. Well, he should have skipped this one. Like, <laughs> he should have taken a break. You know, gone fucking to Club Med, done some golfing or something, because this is a waste of time. Um, and um, I think it's great. I think it has a lot of insightful things to say about the first movie, and I think it works no. just as well as a, a portrait of a very old man looking back on, you know, a, a, a past that may not be as noble as he remembers it. He's like an it asshole. He's still an <laughs> asshole, and he does asshole things, and fuck that guy. I liked it a lot. <laughs> Let's listen to some Francois Hardy. <laughs> C'est pas comment ça finira et puis qu'on gagne dedans. Ça durera car on sait seulement que l'on se plaît. Sera ce toi ou moi? Lequel des deux qui le premier partira? Pour le moment, on ne s'en occupe pas puisqu'on se plaît. On se plaît même peut-être bien. Oui, qui le sait peut-être? All right, so that's our show for this week. Mike's got to go home and, and cool down. I need to take a cold shower with a toaster. Next week on the show will be our, uh, our uh, Scary Cat Halloween episode. We're going to talk about Edgar G. Ulmer's The Black Cat, starring Bella Lugosi. And, and Boris Karloff. And Boris Karloff. And Paul Schrader's remake of Jacques Tenor's Cat People. Cat People. Starring Natasha Kinski. That's right. From 1982. And uh, also next week we'll be talking about Bella Lugosi. And we'll be picking our essential cat. Cinematic cat. Cinematic cat, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, if you, Only the best on the George Sanders show. If you're in uh, Toronto this week, this month, you should be checking out the Declare Denis series at the uh, at the Lightbox. They're going, I think it's a full retrospective of her films. And it's been going on already. You've already missed uh, Beau Travail, which is my favorite of hers. But uh, coming up this Tuesday, the 22nd, which is actually Catherine Deneuve's birthday, is uh, I Can't Sleep, which is a, a pretty good movie. I saw that a couple weeks ago. And then later on, they're playing uh, Friday Night, U.S. Go Home, Lynn True, and Trouble Every Day, which I think are both uh, good Halloween movies. I don't know. I'm hoping they are because I just rented them from Scarecrow. Uh, and then, you know. They got uh, 35 shots of rum and the white material that's ongoing through the middle of November. So Claire Denise, uh, a, a fantastic filmmaker. You should all check out her movies. Yeah, I should see more, Denise. I've seen uh, Friday Night. and Yeah, I should check it out. Well, if you are uh, kind of near Toronto, if you're in Chicago, um, you should go to the Music Box Theater. They're doing a, uh, a series. I think it starts this week. Um called Werner Herzog Feats of Madness. And they're showing uh, a bunch of Herzog's acclaimed films, Fitzgeraldo um, and Burden of Dreams, the documentary about making that movie, uh, Stroyzek, uh, Signs of Life, Casper Hauser. But the one I'm telling people to go see because we're gearing up for Halloween is um, they're running Nosferatu. 
uh, his remake with uh, Klaus Kinski, who is the father of uh, Nastasha Kinski. There you go, tying it all in. Um, and also Isabella Johnny from Ishtar. There you go. Um, it's a great movie, and I think they're playing it most of the week um, at uh, the Music Box Theater there. Yeah, I think it goes through the 24th of October. So uh, go check it out. Yeah, that's a great movie. It it's is. a lot of fun. It's a, a movie that supposedly had no reason to be made, but is interesting in conversation with F.W. Murnau's original. But it stands on its fucking own, Sean. <laughs> oh, my God. It doesn't need to stand on its own. Yes, it does. No, it, it doesn't. <sighs> Why should it need to stand on its own? It's such an arbitrary rule. <laughs> Take it away, George. <laughs> you must remember this. A kiss is just a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by And when two lovers woo They still say I love you On that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of day Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man and man must have his mate that no one can deny. It's still the same old story, a fight for love and glory, a case of do or die. 